Welcome everyone to episode 43 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and I've got another unsolved murder for you guys today. This series of murders inspired the film The Town That Dreaded Sundown. But first, a bit of news. Next week will be another week off from the podcast, but I won't be resting during this break. I'll be writing the next bonus episode that's exclusive for my Patreon supporters. It's a story of my own writing, and I hope that you guys like it. I will also be uploading more of my past episodes to the YouTube channel, which is at almost 50 subscribers. Thank you to everyone that subscribed so far, and if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Anyway, let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders was a series of four unsolved serial murders and related violent crimes that were committed in and around the Texarkana region of Arkansas and Texas in the late winter and spring of 1946. They were attributed to an alleged unidentified serial killer known only as the Phantom of Texarkana. This hypothetical perpetrator is credited with attacking eight people, of whom five died during a ten-week period. The attacks occurred at night on weekends between February 22nd and May 3rd, targeting male and female pairs. The first three attacks were at lover's lanes or quiet stretches of road on the Texas side. The fourth attack occurred at an isolated farmhouse in Arkansas. The murders were reported nationally and internationally by several publications and caused a state of panic in Texarkana throughout the summer. Residents armed themselves and at dusk locked themselves indoors while police patrolled the streets and neighborhoods. Stores sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and many other protective devices. Some youths even attempted to bait and tried to ambush the killer. Investigations were conducted at the city, county, state, and federal level. In the course of the investigations, there have been shifting opinions by officials over whether the first and fourth attacks were committed by the same perpetrator. The prime suspect in the case was Yule Sweeney, a career petty criminal who was linked to the murders, primarily by statements from his wife and additional circumstantial evidence. 
After Sweeney's wife refused to testify against him, the prosecutors decided against pursuing murder charges. Sweeney was convicted on other charges and sentenced to a long term in a habitual car thief and forger. Two of the lead investigators believed him to be guilty of the murders. The book, The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, concludes that Sweeney is the culprit. The events inspired many works, including the 1976 film The Town That Dreaded Sundown. This film is the basis for much of the subsequent myth and folklore around the murders. At around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, 25, and his girlfriend Mary Jean, 19, parked on a secluded road known as a lover's lane after having been out to a movie. The area was approximately 300 feet from the last row of city homes. Around 10 minutes later, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Jimmy's driver's side door and shone a flashlight into the window. Jimmy told him that he had the wrong person, to which the man simply responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Both Jimmy's Jimmy and Mary were ordered out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Jimmy to, quote, take off his goddamn britches. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Mary later told investigators that the noise was so loud that she had initially thought Jimmy had been shot, but it was his skull fracturing. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, Mary showed him Jimmy's wallet to prove that he had no money, after which she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant ordered her to stand, and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run up the road. Mary spotted an old car parked off the road, but found it empty, and was again confronted by the attacker, who asked her why she was running. When she said that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, Mary fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house, where she woke up the residents and they phoned the police. Meanwhile, Jimmy had regained consciousness and alerted a passing car who also called the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant was already gone. Mary was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Jimmy was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Jimmy and Mary gave conflicting reports of their attacker. Mary claimed that she could see under the mask and that he was a light-skinned African-American. Jimmy alternately claimed that it was a tanned white man and around 30 years old, but conceded that he could not distinguish his features and he had, as he had been blinded by a flashlight. Both agreed that the assailant was around 6 feet tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and Jimmy knew the identity of their attacker and were covering for him.
Richard Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of just six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17, were found dead in Richard's car on the morning of Sunday, March 24, 1946. A passing motorist, the motorist saw the car parked on Elover's Lane, 100 yards away of U.S. Highway 67 West in Texas. The motorist at first thought that both were asleep. Griffin was found between the front seat on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There is evidence to suggest that she was placed there after being killed on a blanket outside of the car. Griffin had been shot twice while in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head and were both fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside of the car and then placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. A 32 caliber cartridge casing was also found possibly ejected from a pistol wrapped in a blanket. No extent reports indicate that either Griffin or Moore was examined by a pathologist. Local rumor said that Moore had been sexually assaulted, but modern reports refute this claim. At around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, April 14th, Paul Martin, age 17, picked up Betty Jo Booker, age 15, from a musical performance at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. later that morning, lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found on the other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times, through the nose, the ribs from behind, in the right hand, and through the back of the neck. Booker's body was found by a search party at about 11.30 a.m., almost two miles from Martin's body. Her body was behind a tree and lying on its back, fully clothed. It was posed with the right hand in the pocket of the buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as in the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin's car was found about three miles from Booker's body and one and a half miles away from his body. It was parked outside of Spring Lake Park, with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez said that examinations of the bodies indicated that they both had put up a terrific struggle. Martin's friend Tom Albritton said that he did not believe that an argument had happened between the victims and that Martin had not had any enemies. On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, 37, and his wife Katie, 36, were in their home on a 500-acre farm just off of Highway 67, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He was sitting in an armchair reading the newspaper when he was suddenly shot twice in the back of the head from a closed double window. Hearing the sound of broken glass, Katie came from another room 
and saw Virgil stand up and then slump back into his chair. When she realized that he was dead, she ran to the wall crank telephone to call the police. She rang twice before being shot twice in the face from the same window. She fell but soon regained her footing and tried to get a pistol from another room, but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer at the back of the house and fled out the front door. She ran barefoot across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran to a neighbor, A.V. Prater's house, and gasped that Virgil's dead, then collapsed. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, who Prater sent to collect his car. Taylor complied, and along with the Prater family, took Katie Starks to the hospital. Starks was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation. Four days later, Davis talked with Starks again, and she discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside of their home several nights in a row and feared being killed. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account of the first attack and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of their attacker and were covering for him. No suspects were ever apprehended. Larry returned to Texarkana after the Griffin Moore murders in hopes of helping to link the cases and identify the killer. But the Texas Rangers questioned her story and insisted that she knew who her attacker was. Officers did not publicly connect the Hollis-Larry attack to the subsequent murders until May 11th, the day after the Texarkana Gazette interview with Larry was published, when Presley and Runnels called on the public to immediately report anyone who had an unexplained absence on the night of the four attacks. In response to the Griffin-Moore murders, police launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas City Police, the Texas Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI. Over 200 people were questioned in the case, and about the same number of false leads were checked. Three people found with bloody clothing were taken into custody, but all three were cleared of suspicion. In the Martin Booker case, Friends, acquaintances, and several suspects were questioned in the Bowie County building by officers who worked in 24-hour relays. Suspects were brought in from, a, from as far as 100 miles away. Gonzalez tried baiting the Phantom by recruiting teenagers to sit as decoys in parked cars while officers waited nearby. Officers also volunteered as decoys with real partners or mannequins. Following the Booker-Martin murders, some officers hid in trees at Spring Lake Park. In the aftermath of the May 3rd murder, officers from the entire area were called upon to help in the investigation. Blockades were effected on Highway 67 East. Those who had been driving in the area near the time of the slaying along with several men found in the vicinity, were detained for questioning. By May 5th, 47 officers were working to try and solve the murder. On May 9th, a mobile radio station arrived with 20 Arkansas State Police officers 
and a fleet of ten prowl cars equipped with two-way radios to help coordinate the growing investigation. On May 11th, a teletype machine was installed in the Bowie County Sheriff's Office to connect with other law enforcement offices in Texas. The unofficial theory for a motive amongst a majority of officers was that of a sex mania. A large amount of money in the home were not taken, nor was Katie Sark's purse. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the case, but this produced over 100 false leads with no fruitful clues or suspects. Within days of the Booker Martin murders, the reward fund had exceeded $1,700, and it rose to $7,025 on the night of the Starks murder and passed $10,000 in the following 10 days. There was some hesitation in linking the Starks murder to the other crimes, because the weapon used was a 22, and Davis believed that it was an automatic rifle. By November of 1948, authorities no longer considered the Starks murder connected to the two double murders. The Griffin-Moore murders raised public concerns, but were generally taken as an isolated incident, as officials did not publicly connect the earlier Hollis-Larry attack to the murders while the Phantom Killer was active. The Martin-Booker murders thus greatly alarmed the public to the likelihood of a serial predator. The deaths of these two church-going teenagers shocked the community. Booker had been a popular high school junior, a sorority member, an officer of her high school band, a winner of scholastic, literary, and musical prizes, and a former Little Miss Texarkana. Her high school ended classes early so that hundreds of young people could attend the funerals. Curfews were set for businesses in an attempt to keep people off the streets at night. It was additionally at this point that the hypothesized serial killer was dubbed the Phantom Killer by local media. Hysteria grew in the days following the murder of Virgil Starks in his home. There was constant media coverage of the increased police activity and the Texarkana Gazette stated on May 5th, that the killer might strike again at any moment, at any place, and at any one. For a week, police were bombarded with reports of prowlers. One officer stated that nearly all of the alarms were the result of excitement, wild imagination, and near hysteria. Previously, it had been normal for houses to be left unlocked. The murders alarmed residents into taking precautions with security from locking doors to arming themselves with guns. Some people nailed sheets over their windows. Some nailed windows down, and some used screen door braces as window guards. The day after Stark's death, stores sold out of locks, guns, ammunition, window shades, and Venetian blinds. Additional items of which sales increased included window sash locks, screen door hooks, night latches, and other protective devices. Guard dogs were sought in local one ads. Because citizens were considerably nervous and armed with guns, Texarkana became a dangerous place. When calling on an address, law enforcement officers would turn on their sirens, 
stand in their headlights and announce themselves to keep from being shot by a nervous homeowner. Gonzalez fueled the hysteria when he announced on May 7th that citizens should oil up their guns and see if they are loaded, and to not hesitate if they feel it necessary to use them. The fear was significant enough to spread to other cities, including Hope, Lufkin, Magnolia, and as far as Oklahoma City, where there were sales spikes for guns and axes. After three weeks without an associated murder, Texarkana's fear began to lessen. The concern lasted throughout the summer and subsided after three months had passed. The rampant spreading of rumors fed the panic and made the police investigations even more difficult. On April 18th, Gonzalez held a press conference to dispel rumors that the murderer had been caught. He stated that the rumors circulating among the public and in the newspapers were a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. He stressed this again in a radio interview on May 7th. Rumors only take the officers from the main route of the investigation. It is so important that we capture this man that we cannot afford to overlook any lead, no matter how fantastic it may seem. Rumors continue to spread through mid-May. Many people believed that the, that the Slayer had been caught. Some believed that he was being secretly held at the Bowie County Jail or even flown to another jail. The Gazette and news offices were drowned with phone calls, both local and long distance inquiring about the apprehension of the killer. Presley declared that innocent people were being accused of being the Phantom and asked residents to show more consideration to their fellow citizens. Although most of the town was in fear of the Phantom, some youths continued parking on deserted roads, hoping to apprehend the perpetrator. Johnson and an Arkansas state trooper were patrolling a vacant road at night when they came up to a parked car. When Johnson approached the car and noticed a couple, he introduced himself and asked if they weren't scared. The girl replied, It's a good thing you told me who you are, and she revealed that she had been pointing a 25 ACP pistol at him. On the night of May 10th, Texarkana City police officers were alerted to a car that had been following a bus. They chased it for three miles before shooting the tires and arresting C.J. Lauderdale Jr., a high school athlete. When questioned at the station, he explained that he was unaware that they were policemen because they were driving in an unmarked car. He said that he was following the bus because he was suspicious of a passenger that had entered from a private car. On May 12th, Gonzalez gave a warning to teenage sleuths in the Gazette saying, it's a good way to get killed. The unidentified killer did not acquire a nickname until after the deaths of Booker and Martin. In the April 16th edition of the Texarkana Daily News, a heading read, Phantom Killer Eludes Officers as Investigation of Slain's Pressed. This front page story was continued on page 2 with the headline, Phantom Slayer Eludes Police. The Texarkana Gazette contained a small title on April 17th which read, Phantom Slayer Still at Large as Probe Continues. The executive editor of the Texarkana Gazette in 1946 
said that managing editor Calvin Sutton had an acute sense for the dramatic, which impelled him to ask if they could refer to the unknown murderer as the Phantom. McAfee replied, why not? If the SOB continues to elude capture, he certainly can, can be called a Phantom. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry were the only victims able to give a description of their attacker. They described him as being six feet tall, wearing a white mask over his face with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. Although Hollis believed that he was a young, dark-tanned white man under 30 years old, Larry believed that he was a light-skinned African-American with no description from the other incidents. It cannot be certain if the same perpetrator or perpetrators were responsible, though it is generally assumed that the crimes were the work of a single individual. The M.O. established for the killer was that he attacked young couples in empty or private areas just outside of the city limits using a 32 caliber gun, although the caliber used in the Starks murder was a 22. A 32 was still believed by the majority of lawmen to have been used by the Phantom. He always attacked late at night on weekends, with cooling off periods of about three weeks between attacks. Gonzalez stated that he and his officers were dealing with a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities, and that the murderer's efforts were both clever and baffling. He also stated that the man that they were hunting was a cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. At the Starks murder scene, Presley said, This killer is the luckiest person I have ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. Officers have said that the killer is apparently a maniac who is an expert with a gun. Victim and survivor Hollis said, I know he's crazy. The crazy, crazy things he said made me feel that his mind was warped. Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, believed at the time that the killer was planning to continue to make unexpected attacks such as that of Virgil Starks on the outskirts of town. He also believed that the same person committed all five murders and that the killer was somewhere between his mid-thirties and fifty, apparently motivated by a strong sex drive and sadism. Lapella stated that a person who would commit such crimes was intelligent, clever, shrewd, and often not apprehended. According to his theories, the killer was not afraid of the police activity, but was aware of the increased difficulty of attacking people on vacant roads, and so he had shifted his target to a farmhouse. He said that the killer could be leading a normal life, was unlikely a veteran, and was not necessarily a resident of the area, despite his knowledge of it. He stated that the attacks show evidence of deep planning, that the killer works alone and tells no one of his crimes, and could either shift his crimes to a distant community or overcome the desire to assault and kill people. Throughout the investigations of the Phantom Killer case, almost 400 suspects were arrested, 
There were numerous false confessions investigated by police. Tackett recalled nine people who confessed to being the Phantom, but their statements did not agree with the facts. In the Hollis and Larry case, no suspects were ever apprehended. In the Griffin and Moore case, over 200 people were questioned, and about the same number of false tips and leads were checked. Three suspects were taken into custody for bloody clothing, two of whom were released after officers received satisfying explanations. The remaining suspect was held in Vernon, Texas for further investigation, but was later cleared of suspicion. To this day, the identity of the real killer is still unknown. I doubt that we will ever know who was behind these murders, but given the time that they took place, I'm not surprised. If you want a better idea of what did happen, watch the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Our final story comes from YourGhostStories.com and it's two people's encounter with a possible lake monster in Texas. First and foremost, understand that two people share this account. It is written on our bio, but just to reiterate, we are best friends that have experienced some pretty strange things together and alone, and have finally decided to share those experiences anonymously with other people. One night, about three years ago now, we were taking a drive around Lake Worth, a lake near our house. We did that a lot, as we were very poor, and the unlit tree and case roads were really fun and creepy to drive through at night. We always liked to drive around and try and scare ourselves, and besides, there was a decrepit old church and the castle to see out there. Well, this night, we were driving down the main road. It was dark, after midnight, and there were no other cars on the road. We took our normal route towards the castle, a government-owned building that resembles a castle with trestleized iron gates and stone towers, and we turned onto the side street that curved around the lakeshore. The moment that the headlights of the car lit upon the tight bundle of trees on the side of the road, I could feel something there. I didn't really see anything so much as I just felt it there, like a shadow at the back of my mind. I asked my friend if she saw anything there, but she said no and I dropped it. I figured that if she didn't see it, and really she's far more sensitive than I am, then it must have been the dark playing on my imagination. We drove to the castle and I let the uneasiness slip from my mind. We left the castle the same way that we had come, and as we had approached the corpse of trees, another car was driving towards us. As the headlights from our car met and combined with the headlights of the other car, the entire forest was lit up as brightly as day. There was something there, visible between the tree trunks. Some strange creature, hunched and disfigured, lopping away from the light as though it were being burned. It was huge, bigger than any deer or wild animal that could be found in the area, and it moved on two legs, like a human, but it wasn't human. Its eyes caught the shine of the headlights and reflected it back orange, 
the color of fire or traffic cones. The closest thing that I can think of to compare it to is the creature Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. Yet it was very different also, more monster-like and muscled. It looked right at us, its creepy, orange eyes snapping right on us. I couldn't help but think it could see us, and it could see how scared and shocked we were, even though it was dark in the car and the headlights were blindingly bright. I felt a horrible chill stab through me, like my fear was a real physical thing, and it was hurting me. I could barely even breathe. My chest was tight and my throat was locked, and as I looked over at my friend, I could see tears pulling in her eyes. I don't know if the people in the other car saw it there, but my friend and I both did. We didn't even pause at the stop sign at the end of the road as we sped back home. My friend thinks that what we saw that night might have been the Goatman, a monster of legend from that area that comes out to frighten and terrorize people. But I believe that it was a demon, because never before have I been so completely and utterly terrified. Well, that's going to do it for today. I hope that you guys enjoyed the stories, and if so, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. I didn't hit the 100 subscribers like I wanted to, so the giveaway is going to be postponed until we get there. But with all that being said, once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.